Now, in history, as in myth and in legend, it is the king who saves the people. That's how it's supposed to be. It's one reason why we get so angry with politicians, isn't it? You're supposed to save us, uh, particularly when they're just sort of looking after themselves. But in what Grace has just read for us in this piece of Bible history, someone saves the king. Her, her name is Abigail, and the way she saves him and what she saves him from, that is going to teach us about ourselves and what we need from our true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as we do that, we'll see more deeply that he is the only possible saviour. And we'll see how wonderful and how unique he is. So 1 Samuel 25, page 297. And it is, it's an incredible story. We stopped at the cliffhanger. and We'll go to the end of the chapter and tell us the story. It is um, part love story. So an intelligent and beautiful woman meets a dashing young prince. And to give away the end, she marries him. It is part comedy. There is a stupid, drunken fool. And to give away the end of the story, he really gets his comeuppance. And it's part um, sort of gangster movie that David takes a step towards being just another bandit. But the heart of the account is something that God does for David through Abigail. So just turn to verse 26, um, the next verse after where Grace pulls the story. She says, and now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. That's what's happening here. The Lord is keeping him from doing something. That means, verse 31, he won't have bloodshed on his conscience. And verse 33, verse 39, David says the same. So this is something God does for David through Abigail. Um, We've got three main characters in the story today. So Nabal is the drunken fool. David is on his way to kill every man in Nabal's house. And Abigail, she is Nabal's wife. And her decisive action and quick thinking saves her family, but also saves David from bloodshed. Which just take a step back. That is an extraordinary thing to say about David, isn't it? Um, save David from bloodshed. If you were to make the musical, 1 Samuel a musical, we would know what would be the catchy chorus um, because it is in one page over, 29 verse 5, and it comes several other times in the book. There's a song. There's a song they sing in Jerusalem and in Israel. Even the enemies, they sing it in the Philistine lands and in Gath. I am not going to sing it today. Um, but it goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. What do you mean, keep David from bloodshed? Um, Just to give you a bit of context, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in World War I, the number of British soldiers killed was 19,240. So two tens of thousands. And that number is three times as many as in all of the combat operations since the end of World War II put together. It's easy to forget, I think, that David is a soldier. 
And not just a soldier. He is a highly effective soldier. He's a general. He's a champion. He has killed his tens of thousands. And remember, Israel is locked in a life and death struggle with a hostile invader. And David's sword is the the wall that stands between your family and the people who want to enslave and murder you. We need rescue. But again and again in 1 Samuel, we've been learning what kind of rescue we need. So over the last few weeks, um, Campbell and David, they both reminded us about the choice of Saul. Um, The people chose Saul because he looked like the right kind of king, good with a sword. And actually, we've learned that we need a king after God's own heart, which means we need a king who is humble and always listens to God, a king who always does everything that God commands. Now, do you see why that is a a challenging piece of recruitment? So we need a savior king. We need someone who, uh, on the one hand, he needs to be a blood-drenched super soldier. But he needs to be someone who has never done anything wrong. So how, how, how could one person be both of those things? And Saul by now has been revealed as actually the opposite of what we want. Um, he's done all right at the soldier bit, but by this point his transformation is complete. He's jealous, vengeful, angry, out of control, and violent. Okay, so, so Saul now is clearly the baddie, and David is the goodie. And we think, okay, we know how that film goes. We know how that will run. But today in chapter 25, there is a drunken fool called Nabal who is able to push David's buttons to such an extent that David has never looked more like Saul. So that's going to be our, our first heading. is just about how this man Nabal pushes David's buttons. Um, Saul charging around the country, hunting for David with his soldiers. And now David charging around the country with his soldiers, planning to massacre a whole kind of farmhouse and household. David's never looked more like Saul, never looked more like a normal human being, never looked more like what the powerful do all over the world, which is not what we need. That means God's plan to rescue is at risk of total failure. Uh, If this is what David is going to become... All of God's plan is over. Okay, so there is the, um, the recruitment matrix for Jesus Christ, for Jesus the King. He must be powerful and victorious. He must defeat the enemies and bring justice to the whole world. But he must also never do anything wrong. And we're here in this story to see how important that is and how difficult. So, um, Come back to the beginning of the story. David is um, out in the, the fringe badlands of Israel. He's hiding out there. And a wealthy man called Nabal decides to take a risk with his business. He sends a huge flock of animals into the badlands to eat all the free grass. Okay, so that's a good decision. It's free. It's a risky decision because there'll be bandits and invaders and problems. But his luck is in. Because his animals, they go to the place where David is hiding. And David is not just another bandit. Um, Verse 7, that is not how groups of rebels normally treat local farmers. Uh, 
once. They did not ill-treat us. Nothing was missing. And uh, Nabal, he doesn't actually ask his shepherds to find out, but his wife does, and they confirm the story. In other words, um, David, when on the run for his life, hungry and desperate, is the same David he was when he was general and servant of the king, responsible for law and order. How, How do you get a hungry army not to steal? says something for the, the character of the man David, that he was able to keep his army under this control. But now, um, the sheep, they are fat and woolly, and Nabal has taken them home to shear them. So David sends some messengers to ask for payment. That's verses 6 to 8. It's a courteous request for payment. And it, it's completely obvious in the narrative that David is right to ask for this money. I think at first glance, it reads a bit like the sort of godfather um, you know, sending somebody to collect the protection money from the ice cream parlor, or we'll smash the. I don't know why it's always ice cream, but that's the um, that's the thing it reminds me of. Now we um, we can't know every detail of sort of civic obligations in 1000 BC, but it seems clear that everyone in the story agrees David is genuinely owed this money. Uh, it's much more like Nabal had hired David to act as his security detail for a summer. So verse 6 to 8, David thinks he's got the right. Verses 14 to 17, Nabal's servants agree. In fact, verse 17, they think their master is wicked for refusing. Abigail, she thinks the same, verses 25 to 26. Verse 37, Nabal even seems to agree. When he sobers up, um, he has what seems to be a fear and guilt-induced heart attack. And then verse 39, crucially, God agrees. (coughs) So David is in the right. And think about the situation David's in. He's been through hunger and hardship for this man, uh, and now he's owed his payment. And Nabal is just outrageously insulting. Verse 10, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from these masters these days. Then you can see the um, the smile of slow cunning on Nabal's stupid face. Um, he knows that Saul wants to kill David. And you wonder, maybe this has been his plan all along. Maybe he never had any intention of paying. By the time David tries to call in this debt, probably he'll be dead. And certainly he can't get his soldiers anywhere near me with Saul's army around. So hurtful. When in fact, David has been nothing but loyal to Saul, um, saved his life in the last chapter, and now he's being accused by a man like Nabal of being just another rebellious bandit. So David is told all that, and everything David does, I think, is very understandable. Um, the payment, it was important. It's hard to feed a small army in a desert uh, on the run. It's very disappointing. I don't know if you're keeping up with um, I'm a Celebrity, Owen from Hollyoaks. He does this every time he hears there is no food. Very disappointing. Um, And it's dangerous for David. His army needs to eat. And at this point, his authority is threatened. His ability to hold the army together falls apart. And potentially, it's all over. And David, as well, has all the power he needs 
to do something about this. Um, he is David the super soldier. Nabal thinks you can't get an army near him, but actually David runs the SAS effectively. There's nothing stopping David getting 400 of the SAS in and out of Israel before Saul even gets out of bed in the morning. And Bible narrative often works by holding up two different characters and asking us, are they the same or are they different? So start with Saul and Nabal, now very much on the same team, both of them enemies of David. And let's see what happens to Nabal, see if we can work out what's going to happen to Saul. Saul and and Nabal are the enemies. But that's why it's so disturbing that really what's going on here is a comparison between Saul and David. Um, There's a difference. Uh, Saul has no genuine grievance. David has. But the response is terrifyingly similar. David is angry. He's hurt. He's offended. He is powerful. And he decides to do something about it, something far more than any kind of justice would demand. He decides to kill every male in that extended household. And the the speech he gives in the the sort of pre-dawn, verse 21, verse 22, it is angry. It's all about me. It's a speech that Saul could happily have given, ready to kill them all, even the innocent. And that is the risk to God's plan. Even if we sympathize with David, even if we think this is just normal human behavior, it still would be needless bloodshed. Verse 31, it would be a staggering burden on the conscience of the future king. It would be sin, petty, self-seeking vengeance, nothing to do with justice. Whereas God's big project... Well, maybe we just think it's so demanding it is never going to happen. A king, a human king, who never does anything wrong, where are we going to find one of those? And it's at that point that the the hero of the story rides in on her donkey. So um, point two is all about Abigail, who saves the king's holiness. Um, Verse 23 is the the turning point of the story. That's when salvation begins. Come back with me just a few hours, though, to verse 14. So Abigail, it feels like she's been away from home. Uh, She's been out in the fields or somewhere. She comes in, and they tell her what's happened. And uh, verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. And David, remember, is meant to be miles away. Nabal um, doesn't think David's going to respond at all. He's just uh, on the booze. But she is decisive. And the household goes into overdrive, and they pile up the donkeys with everything she can get her hands on in the household. Then she pushes the servants out the door. Go ahead, go ahead, I'll follow you. And they rush out into the night. And just think how easily this could have gone wrong. You know, what if they chose the, the wrong road? What if she got home slightly later? But this is God's work. God has sent Abigail to save David from himself. So verse 23, they meet, and she bows down, and then she speaks. And her speech is extraordinary. It's long, verse 24 to 31, and everything about it. She is intelligent and of good judgment, where Nabal is foolish. And she has something important to say. And as you read it, she is humble 
and generous and repentant on behalf of her household and apologetic and theological. Um, She identifies what's going on. This is the moment when God is saving you, David, she says. She's in fact, she's a political genius as well, I think. Um, She says, no, my Lord, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed, he hasn't said anything yet to the man with his sword in his hand on his ear. Since you're not going to do this, um, this is how to win friends and influence people. And David recognizes what she is, verse 32. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. And without her, there would be a massacre at Nabal's house, and there would be an irreversible break in David's holiness, which means an end to God's plan to rescue Israel. And I don't know what you think of this idea of saving the king's holiness. I think we're used to the idea that you need to save the royal life. Um, That is what bodyguards are for. They're there to kind of step in and stop an assassination. March the 31st, 1981, a man called Tim McCarthy stepped in front of President Reagan and was shot through the lung and through the liver. And President and Secret Service agent were operated on together at the nearby hospital. Both lived. Um, But we're used to that. The, The king's life needs to be saved. But God's king needs his holiness just as much. And Abigail, brilliant, decisive, brave, kind Abigail, she throws herself in front of the king and deflects the bullet that would have destroyed him just as surely as an attempt on his life. See, in her speech, she she talks about David's future victory. Verse 28, 29, 30, there's going to be a lasting dynasty. His life is securely bound in the bundle of the living. Every good promise of God will come true. And all of that is the easy bit, actually. It's the holiness that is the hard bit. A super soldier who never does anything wrong. That's what we need. And in the end, actually, that will be too hard, even for David. Read on into 2 Samuel, if you can bear it. But there are hints here in verse 43 and verse 44. Um, if you read this in advance, I don't know if you noticed, that at the point where the, um, the marriage happens, and it should kind of fade out into happy ever after, the narrator just reminds us there are actually now three wives and two husbands in this happy ever after. Um, maybe David is going to have problems with living God's way when it comes to his marriages and his family. And that is where the, the contrast that matters the most is the contrast between David and Jesus. This is where we see how completely Jesus provides what we need. And power, but also perfect integrity and character. You think David does pretty well. David, who is this extraordinarily humble, extraordinarily trusting the Lord, uh, even when Saul is trying to kill him. Even he can be knocked up his path by someone like Nabal. Where Jesus, Jesus is entirely different, isn't he? Um, It's hard sometimes when you're reading the Gospels to notice what isn't there. It's always harder to notice an absence than a presence. But what isn't there when you read about Jesus? He never, ever, at any point, sins. 
Um, he gets angry with injustice and hatred and hypocrisy and lies. But even when they come and arrest him wrongly, there's no sense of seeking vengeance for himself. There is no blood guilt in him. In fact, I think we never even feel nervous for him. Um, I imagine it's pretty nerve-wracking being a good friend of a politician. Isn't it? You watch them, you know, they go up on TV and they're answering questions, or you watch them making big decisions, think, oh, is he going to lie? Is she going to make a mistake? You know, you're kind of always worried. I am never nervous about Jesus. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm watching Jesus. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. And when he says that, he's quoting David talking about this period of his life. Jesus under enormous pressure, but I never feel nervous. He is not like us. Um, It's because he's more human than we are, not because he's less human, but he is different, isn't he? Unique. And he is what we need to reverse the human problem, defeat sin, and lead us back to God. So as we watch Abigail throw herself in front of David to prevent him from becoming sinful, just wonder at the Lord Jesus, who never needs that kind of protection. And then last thing for us to look at is how Abigail models for us how we should be, models the people's faithfulness. So this book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, it's a book about how to trust the king. And in particular, it's about how to trust the king when that doesn't seem like a very good idea. We, we live, don't we, in a world where Jesus does not seem very powerful. 1 and 2 Samuel, we think, were probably pulled together at a point in history when it just didn't look as if the Davidic monarchy was going to survive. And certainly when Abigail meets David, he is an outlaw under a death sentence from the king. Makes no political sense to join in with David at this point in the story. Just like it doesn't really seem to make any sense to go on trusting Jesus in the day-to-day of life at work, uh, identifying with Jesus, obeying Jesus. But in this story, we keep meeting people who show us what it looks like to trust David before he becomes powerful. Um, Jonathan, Saul's son, we met in the last few weeks, gives up his own throne to say, I'm going to follow David, even against my own father. Um, And now we meet Abigail, who is a lot like Jonathan. um, But more than anything else, the author really enjoys the way she is nothing like her idiot husband. Um, So do you remember Nabal in verse 10? What he said about David. Who is this? Just one more rebellious servant. I don't need to give him anything. Um, Looks like a good, clever thing to do to Nabal. Saved himself some money. Why would you waste your money on a no-hoper like David? And in fact, probably Nabal is planning to join Saul's side. He's described as an enemy, which again makes sense. Saul is winning. Saul is the king. David's a nobody. That's the normal response. So I just want us to enjoy what Abigail does and maybe hold up our own hearts for comparison. Let's see if we can warm our hearts by the fire of her loyalty and faith and devotion. So verse 23, she sees David 
And quickly, she's bowed down with her face on the ground. And throughout, she talks about him as my Lord, where she is his servant. Um, She brings food, lots of food, because partly that's right. Um, Her household owes this payment, but also because she wants to help. Um, She can't join David's army as a soldier, but she commits her life and her intelligence and judgment and her resources to this cause of making David king. It's not a bad verse to have in a a day when we've talked about giving. Um, She is all in, isn't she, with all of her resources. And then the end of her speech, verse 31, is, I think, a job application. She says, when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. In other words, when you're king, call me. I'm I'm your servant now when you're nothing more than a refugee and an outlaw. And I want to be your servant then when you are the king. And that's where we see her most striking example to us is that she believes. She really believes that this man, David, will be the king. At verse 28, the Lord will certainly make. Verse 29, David will live. Why, Abigail? Why do you believe this? Verse 30, the Lord fulfilled every good thing he promised. It's because God has promised. So she will act now in ways that will only make sense on the day when David sits on his throne. Though actually, in in her case, um, David remembers her a bit sooner than that. Um, So when Nabal um, sobers up, realizes what he does, he... um, His heart failed him. He became like a stone. And 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And um, she offered to be his servant in the future. But David sends messengers again um, just two weeks later, verse 39. um, Sending messengers to that house didn't go very well last time. But this time, Abigail is head of the household. She is free to make her own decisions. And David sends asking her to become his wife. And again, she acts decisively. Um, And I think maybe we have questions about whether David did the right thing, but the narrator doesn't seem to have any doubt at all about her. Um, She is uniting her life to the king. Um, Think about the decision she's making. She's choosing danger and exile and discomfort and risk Because she believes in the promises of God. She wants to be as close to God's king as he will have her. So I want to finish just looking at our own decision. Uh, A few Sundays ago at the, the 5.30 service, we read the verses where Jesus offers anyone the chance to be his mother or his brother or his sister. Follow him. Bow down to him as Abigail does. Trust God's promises like she does, and come and join his family. And that decision would be the right decision now, even though we don't yet see him on his throne and in power. Though unlike Abigail, we have far more reasons to do that. We've got the history of David for a start. We know this worked. The the shepherd boy, the refugee, became a king, became an emperor, became the founder of a dynasty, That lasted for hundreds of years. And Abigail, she became queen of Israel. This was the right decision. We have the character of Jesus. Character that that never, ever 
was at risk. Perfect holiness in public under huge pressure. And we have the resurrection of Jesus, witnessed by his disciples to tell us the king is alive and waiting to claim his world. So we say to Jesus what Abigail said to David. When the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant.